Glory, hallelujah. <laughs> Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you have not now seen him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining for yourself the faith, the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. I was thinking, as I um, got the privilege to preach on Easter Sunday, I was thinking, well, we, it's a huge privilege to preach every Sunday, right? Pastor Tim and Pastor Doug, you know, any Sunday that we get into a pulpit, is a, it's a resurrection Sunday. Uh, the very fact that we worship on a Sunday is a, a, by, a byproduct of the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, and the church now worships on that Sunday, but I was thinking, you know, as I was trying to consider what it was that God laid on my heart, he kept bringing me back to this passage in First Peter that I just quoted for you. You know, when you look at the different types of resurrection or Easter sermons that can be preached, there are some that I will call evidence-based preaching. And in that, what they'll do is the pastor will speak to you about the different evidences for the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Pastor Tim read one of the sections about the empty tomb and, and the witnesses and the people that saw him and a variety of evidences that you could preach on about the resurrection. Or there's a second type of preaching that you could do on the resurrection, and I'll call it the essentials of the resurrection. That what did the resurrection provide for you? You know, it's very clear that the resurrection provided vindication for Christ because Christ said, I am going to rise from the dead and it vindicates him. If Jesus Christ's body is still in the tomb today, we don't have a savior. If you, if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul takes labors and pains to talk about the fact that we have no faith, we have no gospel, we have no hope, we have no forgiveness if Christ's body is still in the tomb. You could preach there. But there's a third way that I think you could preach is about the evidence of a changed life, the experiences of a changed life. And I was thinking about who could you preach on? You could preach on James, the brother of Jesus. James, the brother of Jesus, and his other brothers and siblings didn't believe on him when he was alive. And it was only after the resurrection, which Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that Jesus showed himself to James. James became a powerful leader of the New Testament church, and he wrote an epistle that we still have today. 
You could preach on him. You could preach on Saul. Think about Saul, the, the man who, who thought he was doing God's will, and he was out there persecuting the church. And Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, saw him on the road to Damascus. And that man became changed, a changed life, radically changed. He went from being Saul of Tarsus to the Apostle Paul, who wrote 13 books in the New Testament. You could preach on him. But I kept coming back to Peter. I love Paul. I memorized the book of James years ago. But it's Peter that reminds me of me. And maybe reminds you of you. You know, Peter is that type that he's just so likable. He's lovable, but the reality is, is that he is gregarious, gregarious. He's enthusiastic. He's outgoing. But he sticks his foot in his mouth a lot, doesn't he? <laughs> Peter is impulsive and insecure. You know, when Peter was called by Christ, you know, Christ called him and Peter left his fishing and he followed Christ. How many of us would follow Christ, leave our jobs and just follow Christ all over this world? How many of us would actually do that? Well, Peter did that. And you know the stories of Peter. Peter was um, one of the leaders of this disciple community. And we hear some stories of Peter. You know, the, the one story that everybody knows about Peter is that there was a storm and, then Pete, and Jesus is walking in the water and Peter saw what he thought was the Lord. And he says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out there. And he got out of the boat and he started to walk on water. And you know the story, right? Peter walked on water and then all of a sudden he started to look around and he became discouraged and defeated and he fell into the water. And everybody remembers his failure in falling into the water, but nobody remembers the fact that none of the other apostles got out of the boat. It was Peter who got out of the boat, right? All the other ones are staying in there in fear. Peter got out of that boat because he had faith in God, and he got out of that boat and walked on the water. We see Peter at the transfiguration. He was given the privilege of being one of the closest apostles uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ, Peter, James, and John. He was there at the Mount of Transfiguration. And even there, when he had the privilege of seeing Jesus transfigured, he opened his mouth and he said something he should have because Peter is impulsive and somewhat insecure. I like Peter. I like Peter because Peter's also outspoken. You remember in Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus said, who do people say that I am? Remember what Peter said? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and Jesus said, it was actually at that time that Peter got his name. He went from Simon to Peter. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven. And now you're no longer Simon, you're a rock, a stone, but on the ultimate rock, the confession, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Incredible, can you imagine that I've been given the gift by God to be able to speak his word, and, he, and I proclaim the word, and I've gotten the commendation of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But soon after that in Matthew 16, what you'll find is that Jesus is foretelling of his death, which he had done many, many, many times. He had told the apostles that I am going to die, that the 
Jewish leaders are going to take me and I am going to die. I'm going to um, rise again after three days. Well, Peter, amazingly, took Jesus, maybe even manhandled him. The passage clearly says he rebuked him and said, no, you're not going to the cross. And he went from having the words of God to the words of Satan, because you remember what, Satan, what Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. Out of the same mouth come praising and cursing. My brother, this should not be. Well, that's Peter. You remember, Peter is not just impulsive and insecure and outspoken, but Peter is pretty self-confident, right? You remember the night that Jesus was betrayed. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus said, you strike the shepherd and the sheep scatter. And Peter, in some level of overconfidence, some level of self-reliance, said, if everyone else leaves you, I will be here with you. I will never deny you. Luke tells us that um, Jesus said to him, Satan desires to sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you that when you do fall, that you will bring your brothers back. Jesus also told him that, Peter, this very night, you will deny me three times. Peter said, no way, I will not. Then Judas comes with these, apostles, with these different people, these um, uh, religious leaders, and they take Jesus by force. And you remember what Peter did. Peter pulled out his sword, and he was attempting to kill one of the leaders that were grabbing Jesus. And he is so incompetent at this, he cuts off the guy's ear instead of cutting off his head. What is he doing, Peter? And then he grabbed Jesus to take him away. And what we find in Matthew is that Matthew says that Jesus, I mean, Peter followed at a distance, out of fear. And then you remember, probably his greatest fall. He's warming himself by the fire. And someone says, you're one of his disciples. Not me. No, not me. And then he goes over here. You're one of his disciples, aren't you? It's not me. Not me. And now a third time. And now what Peter does is he starts to call down curses upon himself. He goes back to his old language before Christ. And he starts calling down these curses and says, it is not me. And amazingly, the rooster crowed. But I think it's Luke's text that tells us something pretty difficult to handle. Have you ever been caught in doing something wrong? You know, there's this internal, mm-hmm, right? <laughs> I got an uh-huh down here. Everybody should have said uh-huh. <laughs> You've gotten caught. There's an internal conviction that can happen when you get caught. But what the gospel writer says is not just simply had an internal conviction. As soon as he said the third time that he denied Christ, he caught eyes with Christ across the room. 
Can you imagine that the Lord Jesus Christ, who is now on trial for his very life, and Peter, just hours before, in his self-confidence, said, I will never deny you. And on the third thing, he catches eyes. You ever get caught? You have the internal conviction, but now there's this external thing. And the Bible says he wept bitterly. He had regret. That was Peter. He was a broken man. All of us have let Christ down many times. Some of us in less dramatic ways than Peter. All of us struggle with overconfidence and self-reliance. All of us struggle with trusting in our own faith or trusting in our own power. And I will tell you, it will fail you. Second Corinthians tells us that there are two different types of repentance. There is worldly sorrow and then godly sorrow. I should say not two different types of repentance, but two different ways that you can handle your sin. Worldly sorrow is like remorse. It's the person that gets caught but is only worried about the external consequences. Doesn't care about God and doesn't care about others. Just cares about the fact that I don't like these consequences myself. That's one person. That's worldly sorrow. And they'll try to fix it themselves. That's what Judas did. Judas turned inward and he tried to fix it himself and it led to his death. But then there's Peter. Peter eventually is going to turn upward because he recognizes the sin has to go to a savior. My guilt has to receive grace. And worldly sorrow will lead you to death, but godly sorrow would lead to your life. And that's what we have in Peter's life. It's resurrection morning. Pastor Tim just read it. Oh, can you imagine? Nobody knows. We don't know what they were doing on Saturday. But on Saturday, I can't imagine what Peter must have been going through. I sit in a counseling office with people that live their lives with regret. Broken relationships that are over. And I wish I could win her back and I can't. Maybe a job that's been lost because of choices that you've made. Or even more difficult, words said to somebody and now that person is dead. And you'll never be able to take it back. That's what Peter was experiencing. Peter wasn't thinking about the empty tomb on Saturday. He's weeping bitterly. You know what amazes me? In, in one of the gospel accounts, it actually talks about the religious leaders on Saturday remembered the words of Jesus and did what? They ran to Pilate and said, you know, that imposter said that when he dies, he will rise again three days later. They knew the word of God, but they didn't believe it. They believed that the disciples would go and steal the body away. The disciples heard the word of God, but they didn't trust it. But then Mary and these other women come to the disciples on Easter morning, resurrection morning, and they say the tomb is empty. And one of the first apostles that start running, who's one of the first apostles that start running to that tomb, man? It's Peter, man. John outpaces him because he's younger, but Peter is running to the tomb. And he's saying, maybe, maybe there's hope. Maybe there's hope. And you know the story. Eventually, Jesus is going to show himself to 
not only Peter, but the other apostles. He's going to show himself to James, his brother, who is going to be transformed. He's going to show himself to the women on the road. He's going to show himself to some disciples walking on the road. He's going to show himself to 500 people at one time. He's going to show himself to Saul on the road to Damascus. And we get Paul, and now we get 13 books in the New Testament because the resurrection power of Jesus changes everything. I... I love the cross. I want to sing of the cross. I want to preach of the cross because the cross is the central moment in humanity. It is at that place where the holy wrath of God and the holy love of God come together in one. There's this love for humanity, but his need to provide justice for your sin is poured out on Christ on that cross. And Christ won the victory for every single person who trusts in him. But that cross means absolutely nothing if Jesus isn't resurrected. If we're not here on Resurrection Sunday and if Christ's body is still in the tomb, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, you have no faith. We have no preaching. We have no hope. The dead souls are dead and gone, and now they're going to go to a judgment. We have no forgiveness of our sins. What transformed Peter was the resurrected Christ. I want you to also consider that um, after Jesus was resurrected, he recommissioned Peter. You remember that time John talks about it, that um, they're on a seashore, and Jesus comes up to Peter, and he says, Peter, do you what? Do you love me? And Peter said, I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. There was a second time that Jesus said, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Feed my sheep. And then the third time, you remember, Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? And at that, Peter was a little disturbed and he was hurt that Jesus was asking him a third time. And he says, now he goes to the omniscience of God. He says, Jesus, you know everything. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs. And I think that the reason why Jesus recommissioned him three times for those three denials that Peter made, he was going to be recommissioned three times. I love you. I love you. I love you. There was a boldness that happened with Peter after that. After Jesus Christ was ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit comes upon Peter. And the book of Acts, the first part of Acts, is all about Peter's ministry. And one of the incredible sermons that Peter preached, the very first one, filled by the Holy Spirit, he's preaching 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. The power that days before he could not stand before a little girl and admit that he's a disciple of Christ, but now in the absolute authority and conviction of the gospel and the risen Christ, he stands and he points his finger at those very same people that led to the death of Christ and says, you crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. That's the Peter that wrote this letter that I quoted to you earlier. That letter was written to people like us I dare say that um, we're living in a time today 
where we're feeling a level of safety being in this room. But all around the world, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are being persecuted for their faith. There are people that would walk into this church today and ask you if you're a believer. Do you really trust in Christ? And if you say yes, they would want to take your life. Now, the Peter pre-resurrection would have denied Christ. The Peter post-resurrection stood firm in Christ. And as he wrote that passage in 1 Peter chapter 1, he was writing to a group of believers that were under the same threat, that they were afraid Nero was one of the rulers in in, um, Rome at the time. And if you remember, Nero was going to be burning Christians at the stake. He was going to use them as lanterns. He was going to douse them with oil and burn them so that they could be lanterns to go into the city. He was going to throw them into lion's dens. And these people had to stand firm in their faith. How could somebody do that if Christ's body is still in the grave? See, a dead Savior saves no one. But Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And Peter knew that. And that's why he went and he said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He said, according to his mercy, he knew that he did nothing to deserve this forgiveness. And you don't either. It's by God's mercy that we are saved. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. The Holy Spirit breathes life into people. Sad to say is this, as I look out in this congregation, I see your faces this morning. There are many of you that I believe and I hope trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And if somebody came in here right now and took all our lives, that your last breath will be here, but your first breath, your first step will be in heaven. But I am concerned that as I look out at a congregation of people, how many of you have heard gospel messages time after time? just like the Pharisees and knew the intellectual information but have not turned to Christ. And Peter is saying that you are born again because God is going to breathe life into you. And he connects that breathing life into you to our living hope. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy. We don't earn it. He's caused us rebirth to be born again to a living hope. And where did he connect the living hope to? Not the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. He connected the living hope to the empty tomb. That empty tomb is the hope that you have, that if God can raise a dead person to life, if he can change your salvation and bring salvation, he can give you hope to get through the greatest difficulties that you will ever get through. And he says that past, Christ died for you present. You live in the power of the resurrected Christ if you are in him. Future, you've got an inheritance that's waiting for you that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance. That inheritance is being kept for you. But then on top of that, he doesn't just say that the inheritance is kept for you. He says that God is keeping you for that inheritance. God keeps you. And so when the threats come to your life, guess what? 
God says, I can keep you. You are safe in my arms. He doesn't say that suffering isn't going to come. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. They're various trials. But he says, what is the purpose of those trials? That the tested genuineness of your faith. Peter knew that. Because in his trials, and when he went through those trials, what was it that proved out? The faith that God had given him in Christ. And then Peter was able to say this. Your foundation is firm because you're born again. Your foundation is firm because you have great mercy. Your foundation is firm because we have a resurrected Christ. We're looking forward to an inheritance that's ahead of us. But he says today, right now, you don't see Christ. I really appreciate that. Because there's not a person in this room that's seen the Lord Jesus Christ face to face. Just like these these people he's writing to. He says, you don't see him, but you love him. And you do not now see him, but you believe in him. I love that. And then he talks about this inexpressible joy. Well, most of us don't live our lives with any inexpressible joy. And I think it's because we miss the tomb. Look to the tomb. The tomb is a vindication of Christ. The tomb is an assurance of your justification in Christ. The tomb is an assurance that you could be made holy in Christ. The empty tomb is an assurance that God's word will be proven to be true. But that empty tomb is also a realization that there's a judge. You know, in Isaiah chapter 61, Jesus preached his very first sermon. And when he preached his first sermon, he turned to this passage in Isaiah 61. And the passage goes this way. Hear me. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he closed the book. But that was Jesus on his first advent. And that is from, now, from his advent till today. That Jesus is here proclaiming gospel grace. But in his second advent, the verse goes this way. And the day of vengeance of our God. That there's going to be a day that every single one of us in this room will stand before God and have to give an account. For every thought that we've had, every word that we've spoken, every attitude, every action. The resurrected king is now the resurrected judge. And one of these theological terms I love is justification. Justification is this, that when you stand before God, you can stand before God right with God. Holy in his sight, not because of anything that you've done, because according to his great mercy, he's caused you to be born again. There are some in this room that trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and you'll be praising him and thanking him, and you'll say, majesty, (laughs) worship his majesty. 
or maybe we'll be singing in heaven, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above the heavenly host. Praise Father. Praise Son. Praise Holy Ghost. But the reality is this. There are going to be some who hear messages of need for salvation. And because of stubbornness of their own heart and unwillingness to bend their knee, they will not stand before the king who is offering good news any longer. You stand before the judge that is saying there's an eternal damnation. I pray today that there's not a person in this room that walks out of here without faith. I pray today that if somebody did come into this room, that every single one of us would stand that I believe Christ in absolute conviction, even if it meant our life, because the moment of our life or death here is an eternity, the inheritance that's being kept for you today. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with an overwhelming sense of confidence in your son's cross and confidence in your son's empty tomb. Lord, there are far too many of us in this room, and I've got the finger pointed primarily back at me, that live our lives in self-confidence, trusting in our own faith, trusting in our own wisdom, trusting in our own strength. As it failed Peter, it will fail us. Your scriptures say, Lord, that he who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Well, your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the sterling example of that. He humbled himself. He left heaven and came here to earth. He even humbled himself to the point of death on a bloody cross. He humbled himself to have his body placed in a grave. But Father, you would not allow your son's body to rot. No. You were going to vindicate your son's name, and he rose triumphantly from the grave. And now by your Holy Spirit, for those of us that trust in him, we have Christ in us. And we live in resurrection power today. So Father, help us to live with inexpressible joy. Help us to live by your grace and for your glory. And help us to preach that good news to those who are lost and dying in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.